Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. We started a series last Sunday morning that we have entitled The People of God Transformed. Um, the series before that we called The People of God Empowered, and this series really is unpacking that idea of empowered unto what? And uh, so last week I introduced the subject of transformation. I spoke about the revolution that Jesus, through his ministry, his life, his passion, his resurrection, introduced. It's a transformation that ultimately will renew, renovate, restore the entire created order, the cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth. But it isn't just something that we await in the then and there. It's begun in the here and now with the transformation of our lives. We are the renewal begun. The end has broken into the middle, and God is starting to renew us. Uh, I mentioned that scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says, so if any man is in Christ, he's, a new, he's in a new world. The old things have come to an end. They have truly become new. That new world, the promise of the age to come has broken into this present age in, in you and me. A transformation, a renewal, a restoration has begun. And it starts, as I talked last week, in our inner lives, in our characters. It's a process that will culminate in an event. The process is underway in the here and now. Be renewed in, in the spirit of your mind, the Bible talks about. It ultimately will be consummated when Jesus comes again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says, What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him. And in seeing him, we'll become like him. So there's process and then there's event. It starts in the here and now with a process. It will ultimately be wound up in an event that is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where John says that transformation will be made complete. What we know, he says, is when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him and in seeing him, we'll become like him. So this series is about the process of being transformed in the here and now. I want to begin the message by telling you a true story. It, 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 it happened on Thursday, January the 15th, 2009. For most people in New York, it appeared to be just an ordinary day. But by the end of that day, people were talking about a miracle. Now, they may well have been right, but the full explanation of what happened, if anything, is even more interesting and more exciting. Flight 1549, a regular US Airways trip from LaGuardia Airport in New York, took off at 1526 local time and was bound for Charlotte in North Carolina. The pilot was a man called Chesley Sullenberger III, known to his friends as Sully. Sullenberger did all the regular checks that were required on the Airbus 320 and took off. Two minutes after takeoff, the aircraft ran into the middle of a flock of Canada geese. One goose in a, a jet engine is serious. A flock is disastrous. And almost at once, both engines were severely damaged and lost power. At that point, the aircraft was over, was flying north over the Bronx, which is one of the most densely populated parts of New York. 
and Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to make some significant decisions in a very, very short time if they were to even have any chance of saving the lives of the people on the aircraft and possibly a number of people also on the ground. Where were they going to land this thing? Well, they could see some small airports in the distance, but they quickly realized there was no guarantee that they could make that, and if they didn't, they would crash into a built-up area. They considered putting the aircraft down on the New Jersey Turnpike, which is a busy major highway leading in and out of New York, but that would present huge problems and huge dangers, both for the people on the plane and also for the vehicles and their drivers on that busy highway. They were left with one option, the Hudson River. Now, it's very, very difficult to crash land on water. One small mistake and you have a disaster. For example, if they were to come in with the nose too far down and the nose hit the water, the plane would simply somersault. If they were to come in not exactly flat and one of the tips of the aircraft hit the water first, the same effect. The plane would flip like a gymnast, break up and sink with horrendous loss of life. In the two or three minutes that they had before landing, Sullenberger and his co-pilot had to do the following vital things. They had to shut down the engines. They had to set the correct speed so that the plane would glide as long as possible without power. The fact that Sullenberger was a gliding instructor was fortunate. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which sealed the vents and valves to make sure the plane was as waterproof as possible once it hit the water. Most important of all, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so that it would come down facing the south and go with the flow of the river. Having turned off all the engines, they had to do all of this on battery-operated systems and an emergency generator. Then on final approach to the river, they had to straighten the plane up from the tilt of the sharp left-hand turn so that on landing, the plane would be exactly level from side to side. And then finally, they had to lift the nose back up, but not too far, so that it would land straight and flat on the water. This is what the security cameras captured as Sullenberger and his co-pilot flew the plane in. People described that event as a miracle. It became known, it's still known, as the miracle on the Hudson. You can go onto YouTube and just tap in the miracle on the Hudson and all kinds of stories comes up. And at one level, of course, no one would question that that's exactly what it was. But at another level, you might describe it as the powerful result of right habits. Now, the ancient writers had a word for this. The ancient thinkers and philosophers had a word that described this matter of what they call practiced right habits. They called it virtues. In our day, virtue has become synonymous with the word goodness. But for the ancients, it was what happened when a person had made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something that was good and right but that didn't come naturally. Then 
on the thousand and first time when it really mattered, they found that they did what was required automatically, as we say. On that thousand and first time, it really does look as if this thing has just happened, but on reflection, it tells us that it didn't really happen as easily as that. Virtue is what happens when wise and courageous choices have become second nature. Not first nature as if it just happens spontaneously without effort. Second nature is a second order, if you like, of naturalness. It's a bit like an acquired taste or the developed skill of a musician or a sportsman or a sportswoman. Something that started off being practiced with difficulty, but ultimately, because it was persisted in, ends up being what we call second nature. Now, Captain Sullenberger hadn't been simply lucky, or he hadn't been born with some innate, miraculous ability to fly an earthquake, uh, fly an earthquake craft. Sorry. He didn't possess by birth or natural temperament or by miraculous infusion the specific skills that he exhibited in those vital two or three minutes. He had, in fact, worked countless thousands of hours mastering these skills. He practiced doing these things again and again and again. He desired to be a pilot who mastered those skills so that he could be a top flight pilot. And when the crisis did arise, he automatically, as it were, did those things that he'd practiced and made part of his life all those years. The skills and abilities that he had acquired ran through him from top to bottom. I don't know whether you've ever heard of Brighton Rock Candy. It's famous in the UK. It's candy that you get. And no matter where you break open the candy, it's actually got the words Brighton Rock Candy printed in it. And virtues are a bit like that. No matter where the crisis breaks open a person, if they have been someone who's practiced these virtues, what they've put in comes out in that moment. And in that crisis, Sullenberger and his co-pilot, they didn't have time to consult a flight manual and read the emergency water landing section. By the time they had opened the books, the plane would have been down. What was needed was the kind of character that had been formed by these specific strengths worked on again and again and again, on these virtues knowing how to fly the plane in all sorts of circumstances, and the more general virtues of courage and restraint and cool judgment and concern for the safety and welfare of others. This concept of virtue, as the ancients understood it, is almost totally unknown in our postmodern culture. We as postmoderns, we value and do natural, spontaneous, authentic. Postmodernism, by the way, as a cultural force, has been preceded by a number of other cultural forces. For example, the Romantic movement of the 19th century. They revolted against the idea of rules and virtue. They treasured um, things like spontaneity, the unfettered, the subjective, the imaginative, the emotional, the inspirational. Building on the romantic movement came the existential movement of the early 20th century, which said, live authentically in the moment. And so we come to postmodernism with romanticism and existentialism having set the scene and we've lost completely the idea of virtue. We do the spontaneous, we do the natural, we do the authentic. The discipline 
of small right choices being made, even though initially difficult, until a second order of naturalness is developed is almost entirely foreign to us. I guarantee that the passengers on board US Airways Flight 1549 were grateful beyond words that day that Captain Sullenberger didn't do the authentic, the spontaneous, the natural. I guarantee they came away with a new appreciation of virtue, even if they didn't know to call it by that name. As I mentioned, the ancients understood the concept of virtue in a way that's almost totally foreign to us. Aristotle wrote 350 years before Christ. He wrote very powerfully about virtue and building character, transforming character through virtues. He thought that if we practiced virtue, we would develop the moral muscle of character. His word, the word he used, aritis in the Greek, became virtus in the Latin and virtues in the English. And the virtues were understood to be these strengths of character, these things that we worked on, that as they came together would contribute to a person becoming a fully formed, flourishing character. They understood that character strengths didn't happen accidentally or spontaneously or miraculously. They didn't happen quickly. They had to be worked at and developed. They knew character to be a thing that formed slowly, and intentionally. You don't drift into good character. You don't bump into integrity accidentally. You don't find yourself in purity by complete accident. A person has to choose over and over and over again to develop the moral muscles and skills that ultimately shape and form a fully flourishing character. Now, all of us here this evening, we understand that in terms of physical training. We know that when we engage in a program of physical training, if we persist in it, ultimately we are able to do things automatically, as it were, that we could never have simply done spontaneously without that program. For example, you don't want to try and run a marathon spontaneously. It's not a good idea. You have to build up the miles. You have to persist in the training so that on the day, you actually might be able to complete that marathon. People who lift very heavy weights never just decided one day to lift them. They worked toward that. Pulling off a seemingly miraculous shot in some sport. You know, you often hear commentators say, that was a miraculous shot or a miraculous goal. But the truth is, the players have practiced that miraculous shot or that miraculous goal. They've practiced it over and over and over again in private when nobody's looking. Gary Player, the great South African golfer, once responded to a critic who described him as being lucky. He said, yes, and I've noticed that the more I practice, the luckier I get. Aristotle believed that character development was of exactly the same order. You say, well, that's good for Aristotle, but what does the Bible say? Don, let's get away from Greek philosophy. What would the Bible say about this? What, what, where does the Holy Spirit fit into this kind of transformation? Well, let's explore that question for a moment. I suspect that the writers of the New Testament would actually commend Aristotle's argument to a point. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul what he thought of Aristotle and 
what he thought about his idea of virtue, I think he would have said about it roughly what he said about the Jewish law, which was, it's fine as far as it goes. It points in the right, right direction, but actually it can't deliver on its promises. It's like a signpost pointing in the right direction, but without providing a road that actually gets you there. You see, Aristotle's approach to character development and transformation takes little or virtually no account of the fallen nature of mankind. Our fallenness means that while we have an intuitive sense of what is right and wrong, what we should do and what we shouldn't do, the reality is we're morally flawed, crippled if you like, and we're quite unable consistently to follow up and perform what should be done and avoid what shouldn't be done. That's the torment that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. If you've read that chapter, you know it's, it's filled with this sense of, I know what's right, I just can't do it. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, what I don't understand about myself, he says, is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. We desperately need the empowering of the Holy Spirit to not only know what's right and wrong, but to actually perform it. And, and Paul in this tortured letter says, God, help me, how am I going to do this? And then he goes on to say, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? And then he says, the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by, some, by the influence of sin to do something totally different. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. Paul is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes... When the spirit who's from Christ comes and takes hold of our life and empowers us, we not only know what's right, we have the empowering to be able to do it. So Aristotle pointed the way, but couldn't provide the motive power to get there. Jesus says, my spirit will do that. What that doesn't mean, though, is that the Holy Spirit will do that without your cooperation or responsiveness. You say, well, Don, didn't Jesus say, without me you can do nothing? Well, that's right, but he didn't mean do nothing. He meant without his power, you'd be going nowhere. But he does expect us to cooperate and respond. God's plan has always been to partner with us. He waits for a response. You, you look at the miraculous happenings of the gospel. They nearly always involve, however small, somebody providing something, whether it's a little boy providing his lunch to feed the 5,000, or whether it's Peter actually getting out of the boat and starting to walk on the water. It, he didn't just sit there waiting to be supernaturally picked up, moved over, dropped on the water, and then robotically marched out. He had to do something. The woman who pushes through the crowd with the hemorrhage, she pushes through to touch the garment of Jesus. On almost all occasions, there is something that we are required to do. He will do the miraculous, the parts that we can't do, but he won't do it without us. There's an old adage that says, without him, we cannot. Without us, he will not.
Paul said that inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we would find ourselves being the kinds of people that actually would fulfill, in essence, the law. The law pointed the right way, but didn't give us the power to go there. Paul says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll fill your life and you'll actually be empowered to go where the signpost was pointing. And I don't think it's any different, as it were, for the whole idea of virtues. The same is true for developing character. Inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can begin intentionally to develop Christian virtues and disciplines and see a fully formed character develop within us. It won't happen accidentally. You won't drift into it. You wait for spontaneity and authenticity, and you'll find yourself going in another direction. It has to happen by choice, again and again and again by choice. Eric Clapton didn't learn to play the guitar as he did accidentally. Lionel Messi didn't learn to play soccer the way he played it by just drifting into it. It had to be chosen. It had to be practiced. You know, Paul talks to Timothy and he says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Refuse profane old wives' tales and fables. Exercise yourself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that it now is and of that which is to come. Exercise yourself unto this character that he describes as being godlike. And the Greek word for the word exercise is the word gymnazo, from which we get our English word gymnasium. It means to exert yourself significantly. Interestingly, that exact same word is used in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14, where it talks about an exercise that takes place unto another type of character, where Peter says, these people having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart that they have exercised with covetous practice, cursed children. Listen, you don't have the choice of whether you will exercise your hearts or not, whether you will exercise your character or not. You are being exercised by the choices that you make. Last week I talked about being conformed. You will either be conformed to the will of God or you will be conformed by the forces of this age. You do not have a choice as to whether you will be conformed. Your choice has to do with who or what will be the conforming power in your life. You don't have a choice in terms of whether you will exercise yourself unto a type of character or not. You are being exercised. You have the choice of what kind of character you choose to be. It doesn't happen accidentally. It happens intentionally. You allow, you allow it to drift authentically and spontaneously. It will drift according to the power of this age in your nature. I, I think the process of transformation is actually about the development of what I call holy habits. Choices and behavior that are made again and again and again, and that ultimately weave so deeply into the rhythm and cadences of your life that they ultimately define you. They become your ways, and ultimately they become your character. At first, you choose them and carry them, and after a while, they make you and carry you. Now, when I talk like this, I guarantee there are some people who are listening and they'll be starting to feel a bit suspicious. What, is he talking about working for your salvation? We live under grace. We don't need to strive. This talk of effort makes me feel uncomfortable. Is this legalism? 
Listen, don't mistake what I'm talking about here for legalism. Legalism is about working for God's approval, trying to work for his favor and ultimately for his salvation. The holy habits and virtues that I'm talking about developing and being intentional about working towards aren't about working for God's approval. You already have that in Jesus. All right, you already have that. Listen, look at Philippians chapter 2. 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. By the way, in that passage, you have the work that God does and the work that he expects you to do. He says, work out the salvation that God is working in you by his power and and according to his will. So there's two kinds of work going on there. Don't mistake working out for working for. They are not the same thing. Grace and effort are not opposites. Grace and earning are opposites, but not grace and effort. Working for your salvation is heresy. Working out your salvation is absolute necessity. There are a number of passages through the New Testament. I'll list them and show them up there for you. We won't look at them all just for the sake of time. But they start off something to the effect that make every effort, strive for. Here's one in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. It says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for a godly life. Okay, now here's God's provision for you. In his favor and in his grace, he's made everything available for you. Now, you could put a full stop there and say, well, thank you for that. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't say, since he's given that, you have nothing to do. What it says is, we've received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share in his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So there is the provision for divine transformation. He's given us everything. Here's the promise and where it's going, that you'll be partakers of the divine nature. And then it says, in view of that, in view of the provision and the promises, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with patient endurance, patient endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. This is equivalent to Aristotle's virtues. You start working on these things. Make every effort with regard these things. Let me read it to you in the Amplified Bible. For this very reason, adding to your diligence to the divine promises, employ every effort in exercising your faith to develop virtue, excellence, resolution, Christian energy, and in exercising virtue, develop knowledge, intelligence, and in exercising knowledge, develop self-control, and in exercising self-control, develop steadfastness, patience, endurance, and in exercising steadfastness, develop godliness, piety, and in exercising godliness, develop brotherly affection, and in exercising brotherly affection, develop Christian love. Exercise, develop. Exercise, develop. Exercise, develop. No one in their right mind is going to read that passage and say, I don't have to do anything. It's all grace. There's something we've got to do. 
Without him, we can't. We need his grace. We need his empowering. But he says, I've got something for you to do. I want you to start working toward this. There are many occasions that they'll they'll shoot up where the scripture says, you make every effort to be found this way. Other terminology that's used in the New Testament is put off, put on. Put off the old man. Those habits that you are drawn to, stop doing them. Start saying no to them. Make those choices in the small place. I won't say that. I won't think that. I won't do that. I won't view that. I will do this. I will do that. I'm putting off that. I'm putting this on. The Bible talks about that again and again in the New Testament. It's a matter of consciously, consistently choosing to do certain things, refraining from certain things, And what it does is it creates patterns of memory and imagination deep within us. That's the way virtue develops. In the small places, in the small choices, that's where our character and ultimately our destiny are established. I'm sure you've heard the old adage, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It starts with the small things, the small choices, where nobody sees, apparently nobody would care, but it's the development of that moral fiber deep within. Don't despise the small things. Don't think that you can do small things any way you like, and then hopefully when the candy gets broken, goodness will pop out, because it doesn't work like that. Some of us who are Pentecostals, you know, we've been raised in this environment which says you need to encounter the Holy Spirit, and by golly, we do. We do need the empowering of the Holy Spirit, but don't mistake an experience that you have with God as being the thing that will actually transform you, because people can have all kinds of experiences with God and come out relatively unchanged. And if you don't believe me, you look at Saul in the Old Testament, you look at Judas in the New Testament. These were people who had remarkable spiritual encounters. Paul, uh, Saul in the Old Testament, out under the power of God for 24 hours prophesying, still gets up bent, twisted, insecure, murderous, envious, and loses loses the crown. It wasn't for a lack of spiritual encounters. Judas in the New Testament functions in Jesus' intimate band for three and a half years and is capable of stealing and betrayal. You can have all kinds of spiritual encounters. What I believe about spiritual encounters is that they are necessary, but that they are the catalyst for and an invitation to change rather than being the change itself. The change itself happens as we exercise ourselves in the small matters of our lives, where we choose to tell the truth in that situation, even though the pressure's on us to kind of bend it a little bit. Or we choose to be a person of integrity in that moment when we could easily take out of the pot or cheat the tax department or take some time from the boss, but we choose deep inside not to do that because we want to be a certain kind of person. And I want to tell you, when you do that consistently and uh, there is something that begins to develop in those small places. Annie Dillard said this, how you spend your days is, of course, how you spend your life. Jennifer Deans said this, think of something big, a mountain, a tree, get a mental picture of something that you call big. Now consider that it is made up of tiny atoms. Atoms are made up of even tinier neutrons and protons, and neutrons and protons are made up of elements so small 
that they can't be seen with our strongest microscopes. There is no such thing as big. Everything that we call big is just a whole lot of small. Nature, as God creates it, is the image of the invisible kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom, in kingdom living, small matters. Small is the key to big. In God's kingdom, small is the new big. We all know how that practice works negatively. For those of you who have had a habit to break, you know how difficult that can be. You talk to any addict and they will tell you that they never imagined that they would stand where they are now standing. They started and, and it all seems so small and so inconsequential. But the chains of habit are too small to be noticed until they are too strong to be broken. Habits bed in and soon we have a chain that's too strong to be broken. I think that might be why we call evil vice. Because vice-like, it grips us. And suddenly we find that we've done it so many times that we can't break it. Virtue is exactly the same process, but heading in exactly the opposite direction. One leads to bondage, the other leads to a fully flourishing Christian character. I wanna tell you, when you turn toward, toward virtue, you, you'll discover it is not a first order of naturalness. It will be persisted in with great difficulty in the same way that when you start to learn a piano, you think, I'll never be able to do this. When you start to learn the guitar, you think, this, will, this is just beyond me. When you start to learn a new language, you get to that place where you think, this is never going to happen. But you persist in it. You push through, and then suddenly, on the thousand and first time, something happens, and it becomes automatic. That's the way virtue works. That's the way the New Testament talks about transformation. Not transformation in a moment. I mean, God, God would that he could do that. You know, I mean, I'd like to be transformed in a moment. But he says, I'm taking you on a journey. I want your cooperation. I will not do this without you. It's not that I couldn't. It's not, it's, it's not good for you. You have to participate in this. And it's every choice in the small places of your life until it becomes absolutely automatic. I remember a famous preacher getting on a bus one time. It was many years ago. He got on a bus and uh, he, he uh, paid his fare and the bus uh, you know, conductor paid him the money back and as he went to sit in his seat, he noticed that the bus conductor had given him more change than, than he should have had. He went back up as the journey unfolded, saw the conductor, and he said, you, you, by accident, sir, you paid me too much. And the conductor said, it wasn't an accident. And he said, no, 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 seriously, you, you, you've paid me too much. He said, it wasn't an accident. And he sort of puzzled, and he said, look, I'm sorry, but you've given me too much change by accident. And he says, Mr. Spurgeon, it was not by accident. I gave you too much deliberately. I wanted to know whether you were an honest man. I didn't want to see, I, I know what you preach. I wanted to know, were you an honest man? And he gave the money back. You, you, the small things, just small, they create the big. Let me finish with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Every time you make a choice, he says, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chose into something a little different from what it was before. 
And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all, your life, all of your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be another means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or another. Now, all of us know when you are starting to play the piano, learn the guitar, learn a language, you trip, you stumble, you fail. We are not talking here about perfection. You don't have perfection in those physical pursuits, and you, you won't have it in character either. You'll stumble, you'll fall. It's what you do when you fall. It's whether you say, oh, this is too hard, and just go with the natural, the authentic, the spontaneous, or whether you say, by hook or by crook, I'm going to get that second order of naturalness. This is going to come by your grace working in me. This is going to become who I am. I'm intentional about this. And you start choosing again. Jesus will cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll wash you clean. But he's not going to just suddenly transform you. Some people think that when, you know, well, when Jesus comes again, whatever I am, he'll change me. You know, I'm not so sure about all that. I know that you'll be changed. But, but I, I do wonder about people who make those kinds of calls, whether it will be exactly as they think it will be. Because I don't think you can shortchange God like that. I don't think you can trick him like that. I think there is something about being a person of virtue and a person of character that will bring its own rewards even on that day. And I just want to challenge you. If you decide, I want to be God-like, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be easy. It's going to require you to exercise and develop the virtues that ultimately will develop into a fully flourishing Christian character that is godlike. Exercise yourself unto godliness. And the rest of our series will be talking about things that historically people over the years have said, this developed virtue. This develops virtue. One of those things, by the way, and we're going to close our service with doing this, and then, of course, we've got our week of worship. One of them is we become people of worship. Not, not, not spontaneous, natural, not easy, especially when you're struggling. If you've had a bad day, things haven't turned out right, you're going through an incredibly difficult part of your life, and people around you are worshiping, and the last thing you feel like doing is lifting your hands and saying, thank you, God, because life at present is tough. But the psalmist, and it was David, whose life exactly wasn't, you know, up and to the right. It looked more like jaws teeth. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. Magnify the Lord with me, he said, and let us exalt his name together. He didn't say, if you're feeling good. He said, let that be a virtue. Let that be a holy habit. Become a worshiping person. Because as you're in his presence, beholding him and worshiping, there is something that transpires. There's something that transforms. 
2 Corinthians 3 says, as we behold him, we are transformed into the same image as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord working in us as we are beholding and responding in worship, something begins to change. You might not always see it. It might not always be really apparent to you, but I want to tell you consistently, over times, with his praise ever on our lips, something begins to be fashioned in our hearts. That's what character's about. The hard work of exercising ourselves unto virtue, being a God-like people. You know, Jesus has walked this way. He, he knows how hard it is for us. You know, Hebrews talks about the fact that he understands us. He's walked this way, that he learned obedience through the things that he'd suffered. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 52, it talks about Jesus increasing in wisdom and in favor with God and men. And the idea in the Greek is, is not just kind of the blossoming of growth, but, but the striking of something on a blacksmith's anvil. That, that Jesus walked this way. He, sure, he was without sin, but he didn't just mumble his way, stumble his way into being pure, being holy, being righteous. He, he also chose. And the cool thing about that for me is that he knows how to walk you and I in and through this process because he's been through it. So the empowering of his spirit in us is to walk away that he has walked in the development of virtue, in the flourishing of a godlike character. And if you feel perhaps, you know, you've listened to me tonight and you've thought, Tom, this is beyond me. I feel so in, inadequate. I feel so disqualified. Call out to him. Cry out to him. So Jesus, you've walked this way. Please take my hand and lead me. I'll choose as you help me to choose. I'll, I'll, I'll work out as you work in because he will do it. It might be painful. It could be difficult. There will be some stumbles. But it becomes the intention, the cry of our heart, as we just sang. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.